So your, our scripture reading today is, is from Luke chapter 7, uh, the first 17 verses. And uh, as is our custom at Hope of Christ, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, A man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up, And began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So I realize that uh, maybe at first reading, this doesn't sound like uh, your typical Easter passage. Um, If you're part of Hope of Christ, you know that we've been uh, working our way through the book of Luke uh, ever since the Advent season. But I think as we as we look at today's passage, you'll agree with me uh, that this is uh, this is a perfect Easter Sunday sermon. Well. Easter Sunday passage. I don't know if I would go so far. That's a little bold. I meant passage. This is a perfect Easter Sunday passage. Uh, Partly because one of the questions that should be on all of our minds always, but especially on Easter probably, uh, is the so what? Or to say it less aggressively, maybe uh, 
Now what? What does, what does the resurrection of Jesus Christ mean to me? Uh, what does the resurrection of Jesus Christ mean for me? These, these passages, although they come before the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, in fact, we aren't even halfway through the book of Luke yet. Uh, these passages speak volumes to the power of the resurrection of Jesus and what it means for you and me. In fact, the second passage is about a resurrection. Well, all right, so it's more of a restoration. It's not actually a resurrection. Uh, it's a restoration back to life. So um, this young man's life is restored, but he wasn't in that moment resurrected to newness in life. It's it's more of a, so, but that resurrection, these passages where Jesus raises someone from the dead, they're like a sample, uh, an appetizer, a pretaste of what is going to come through Christ. Uh, because, in fact, this young man will die again. Uh, so, if anything, we pity him because he has to go through this all over again at some point. Um, but I'm getting ahead of myself as usual. Uh, first, we have this marvelous account of the centurion's faith. And I mean that literally, it is a marvelous account of the centurion's faith because it, that is Jesus' assessment of the centurion's faith. He marvels at it. And so in this first, this first passage, verses 1 to 10, we see the power of the word of Jesus. And before we get to that, uh, let's just look at what we learn just about this centurion. First of all, obviously, he's a man of means and authority. A centurion is a, is a military man, an officer, who is in charge of uh, about a 100 soldiers or a 100 military folk. I keep learning that, like, only army are soldiers, apparently. And, like, so then I try to say soldiers, and then I realize that everyone in the crowd then was, or many are like, ugh, soldiers. But anyway, military folk. Uh, so a hundred, because centurion, like century or cent, uh, so a hundred. So that's how you can kind of remember that. So a hundred men are in his, like he is over them. Uh, he knows the power that he has. I mean, he's not shy about talking about it. He says, listen, I have men who answer to me. When I say come, they come. When I say go, they go. When I say to my servants, do this, they do this. Every parent is thinking, I need servants. I don't need children. But that's the wrong application of this passage. But this man knows that he has authority. He's not ashamed of it. He knows the power that has been granted to him by his position. What's then interesting is that he's a compassionate fellow, isn't he? Like he values his servant. We're told specifically the servant had great value to him. He was concerned for his sick servant. And he's kind. He's a kind man, not just to his own, but even to others. He, we're told that he loves the nation, which is strange when the Roman occupiers, like rarely would you describe any of the Romans as, oh, they love our nation. But here's this centurion assigned to Capernaum, and we're told that he loves the nation. He's kind to others. In fact, his kindness is seen in his generosity. This is a generous man. He, he 
at least contributed to, if not built, the synagogue for the people of Capernaum. Which is cool then to realize that this is the guy that built the synagogue where Peter and Andrew and James and John and their families worshipped every Sabbath because that's where they lived and that's where they were from, Capernaum. So it's kind of cool to see those stories coming together. But this man was generous. And then on top of all that, he's humble. So here is this centurion officer with power and authority, and yet he's kind and generous and humble. He says to Jesus, I'm not worthy to have you come to my house. Which is, isn't that interesting? Because isn't that exactly how the Jewish leaders expressed it to Jesus? They said, this man is worthy for you to do this for him. And the first thing he has expressed by his friends is, I'm not worthy for you to come under, for you to even come to my house. He says, this is, I wouldn't even presume to come and ask you. That's why I sent people. I sent folks in you from your community first to come and ask because I'm not worthy to even come and ask you. He's humble. And then what Jesus marvels at most, what we see here is that this man has faith. They consider the implications of his statement. I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And then he describes it. What is his, what is he saying? He's saying, Jesus, I know that even sickness is under your authority. I know that if you say go, this sickness will go. Like, he is expressing faith that Jesus is more than just some good teacher, more than just uh, an inspiring speaker. He is recognizing that Jesus has authority over creation itself. With a word, actually not even a specific word, Jesus heals the servant. Like, we don't even get to hear him say, be healed. He just has this conversation. He marvels. And then the servant is instantly healed. It's incredible the power of the word of Jesus. But I think it's interesting. We don't want to just gloss over it, that Jesus marvels at the faith of this centurion, this this outsider to Israel. He marvels. The word marvel, amazed. He's astonished. This word is used a lot in the Gospels. Almost always about the people watching Jesus, whether it's the disciples or the crowds or the apostles. The people watching Jesus often marvel when they see what Jesus is doing. They're frequently amazed. But here, Jesus is amazed. He marvels. In fact, there's only two times in the Gospels we're told that Jesus is amazed. He marvels at what he sees. One of them is in this situation with the centurion here in Luke 7. He is amazed to find faith in a place where you would have expected to find unbelief. The other time that Jesus marvels is in Mark chapter 6, when he is home in Nazareth, 
We're told he is amazed at their unbelief. In a place where he, you would have expected to see the strongest faith, the very place where Jesus grew up, you find unbelief. And it amazes Jesus. It would be good for us, even, even without this as the application of the sermon, to kind of consider our faith. Does your faith cause Jesus to marvel? And in what way? Is he amazed that though you're going through trials and struggles and pain, you still trust and he's just like, good, that is so good, that is wonderful. Or is he amazed that though you're loved and cared for and provided for, there's still so much unbelief. This is a good thing for for you younger adults or teenagers, whatever you prefer to be called, to consider. I mean, the blessings of of having a family love you and pour into you and and bring you into the the church for the blessing of being a part of the community. Is there there a faith coming up with that? Or do you take that and, and like the people in Nazareth and say, eh, who is Jesus? Who really cares? What's it all for? There's a great blessing and a great responsibility of being raised in the church to recognize the goodness and kindness and love of God. Does our faith amaze Jesus? Jesus' word has the power to heal, the power to save. He can speak. In fact, we sing a song in one of the verses. He speaks and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. The mournful broken heart Rejoice, the humble poor believe. Which brings us to the second passage. Because in truth, the second passage is also about the power of the word of Jesus. But the power of the word of Jesus comes from the the power of the heart of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus. Nain is just a small village. It's about seven or eight miles south of of Nazareth, and so it's a, it's a bit of a hike from Capernaum, which is north of Nazareth. Jesus and his disciples, and we're told a great crowd, uh, is walking along with them, and they approach the town gate. Uh, and when they get there, a sizable crowd is coming out of the gate. Literally, a worthy crowd. Interesting that, that Luke snags that word from that passage. But it's, a, it's an, an adequate crowd. It's a crowd you would have expected to see for the occasion. And it's the kind of occasion that you would know exactly what was going on just from the shape and makeup of the crowd. You wouldn't even have to get that close. It's sort of like when you and I are driving down the road or you're on Route 1 and, and suddenly you see like two sheriff's cars come flying up and stop at the intersection and stop traffic. And then you see this large, this large black vehicle, and it used to be station wagon shaped, and now there's SUVs involved, and then a couple of Cadillacs behind it. 
And then behind that, just a line of cars, all going at the same speed, all one after the other, all with their headlights on. We know from the shape of that traffic pattern what it is. We know we are observing a funeral procession. It's why we stop. It's why it's good for us to stop and let the procession go by. It's a reminder that death is an interruption. It ought to interrupt our days. There used to be a day when, when the, that procession would go through downtown and people would stop even just walking on the sidewalks. They would stop what they were doing and let that procession go by out of respect and out of a reminder that death interrupts all of our lives. But that's, but here's Jesus in this crowd. They come and they would see this crowd coming out and it would be led by women. And so that would be the first clue that there's something different because usually the men would be walking in front. But here's this, this group of women walking in front. And this sounds awful, but this, you want to hear why they did that? Because back then they said, well, that's because death came to earth through a woman. So they should be the first in line at the funerals. It's kind of ridiculous, kind of bad, but we'll get past that. So these women are walking, and then behind them, there's this group of guys, and they're carrying a beer, a bear, a boot, I don't know, a, a flat piece of wood. Someone will have to tell me how to say that word. Buyer? Carrying a buyer. The, the Paul buyers, the Paul bearers. Anyway, they're carrying, that would be next. Then after that would be professional mourners and flute players and then the rest of the crowd. So, so you can tell by the shape what is going on. Here comes this funeral. So whether they pick up the details as the crowds mingle, which would make sense. You know, you're not in a car, so you, you know, people are coming by. And it's like, oh, what's going on? Uh, who, who is that? Oh, it's a young man from our from our village. Oh, that's so sad. And uh, oh, I see there's his mother with the women up front. Yeah. And, uh, where is his dad in the back? No, no, his father's dead. Oh, that's awful. She's a widow. Oh, well, where is No, he has no siblings. He's the only child. Ooh. And then suddenly the feeling of sorrow would just exponentially increase for this woman. His death means that she has essentially entered a living death. Her life is essentially over. She has no husband. In a society that blames women for sin in the world, this is the same kind of society that that when a widow has no one to provide for her, she is essentially of no use to the rest of society. No husband, no son means no means of caring for herself. It's why Naomi, when she comes back to Israel, way back in Ruth, her husband has died. Both sons have died. She comes back to Bethlehem. All the women are so glad to see her. Naomi has returned and she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. God has made my life very bitter. That's what this woman is experiencing right now. If she doesn't have an extended relative who's going to take her in, her only hope for providing for herself are either begging 
or prostitution. And Jesus knows all of this. As an adult male Jew, he would know the cultural and social predicament that this woman is in. And look at, just look at the heart of Jesus for this woman in this passage. First of all, he saw her. So Jesus is just focused on this woman. You know, where most of us, as this funeral procession goes by, where would our eye normally be drawn? What would be the first thing we'd notice? Probably the dead body, like being on people's shoulders. That would be an eye catcher. Jesus notices the woman. He sees her. And then we're told he had compassion. He doesn't just see and move on. He sees and feels. How many of us go through our days, we see people, but we don't have any heart for them. We don't have time for compassion for them. You know, they're in our way. They're a nuisance. They're keeping us from accomplishing the things we want to accomplish. You know, and my wife tells me, I say this word too many times during a sermon, but, you know, on I-95, there's only two types of drivers on I-95, Right? There are idiots and there are morons. So as you are driving the sanctified speed, which is rarely the posted speed limit, but you're driving the sanctified speed and someone comes past you 10 to 15 miles an hour faster than you, first you see them coming up in your rearview mirror and then just boom. And what do we say? Look at this idiot. But again, you're driving long and you're going the sanctified speed and you come upon someone driving about 10 to 15 miles an hour slower than you and what do we say what is this moron doing like never is there a thought in our minds of i wonder if that's a new driver i should not tailgate i wonder if that person is I wonder if their car maybe they have trouble maybe it's just a cautious maybe that's just a better driver than me or the person going fast we never say, I wonder what's going on. I wonder what, I mean, I wonder if there's an emergency. I wonder if there, you know, is there, is the wife in the back seat uh, in labor? Is, is the wife at home? Is the kid at home? Is there something going on? What's going on in this person's life? Like we never, like we see people, but we don't really see them. We don't look long enough to let it have any impact on our hearts. When Jesus sees, it's always with a purpose. Jesus sees and then he feels. He sees and he has compassion on her. And we see that compassion because there's action. He sees, he feels, and he moves. It says he, he went toward her. He acts. If, if seeing without compassion is heartless, then compassion without action is useless. I mean, what good does it do to feel bad for someone and then just do nothing, especially if you have it in you to do something? Even just a phone call, a text, a hug, a longer handshake than usual. Like seeing a need, feeling the need, and then not acting on the need. Jesus sees and feels and acts. And notice he's not moved by her worthiness. He's not moved by the dead man's worthiness. He's moved by her neediness. She needs his help. She's not 
worthy of his help. She needs it. And this is the gospel. God moves toward earth because of our neediness, not because of our worthiness. Jesus is moved to die on the cross for you and for me because of our need, not because of our worth. And as Jesus moves toward her, he speaks to her in verse 13. Do not weep. Don't cry. This is actually a pretty pretty heartless thing to say to a woman who has just lost her only son, who's a widow right now. That's a pretty cruel thing to say at the funeral. Don't cry. I mean, unless... Unless... Unless there's something you know you can do about the situation. And so he touches the buyer. He touches the casket thing. And the whole procession stops dead in their tracks. Pardon the pun. And again, Jesus shows that he is something greater than anyone who has ever walked on earth. He's greater than just any other helper that God has sent to his people thus far. Because normally you touch unclean and you catch unclean. But when it comes to Jesus, when he touches unclean, they catch clean. He speaks again, and this time he talks to the dead man. Now that's not entirely unusual. Like some of us talk to, like at funerals especially, uh, especially a loved one, we will talk to the dead person. Uh, when my best friend died at his graveside, I, uh, I yelled at him. Uh, I was pretty angry. How dare he die? Sounds silly when I say it out loud, but uh, I did not give him any commands. Like, I didn't tell him to do anything. It would have been strange, I think, to, like, ask, you know, hey, could you pick up a loaf of bread on your way home? That would be odd. I don't, you, don't, you don't make requests. You certainly don't make demands of dead people. Jesus, though, he speaks to a dead man. He says, young man, get up. Young man, I say to you, arise. And in probably, I think, one of the most beautifully ironic sentences in the Bible, Luke writes, and the dead man sat up and spoke. And it's just just that quick. Jesus says, get up, and the dead man gets up. Again, it's a little gospelicious, isn't it? Because... Paul says, you and I are dead in our trespasses. And there's no point speaking to a dead man unless you have the power to raise him. And when Jesus says to you and me, young man, young woman, get up. It is only the power of Christ that raises us from the dead. It is only the power of Christ that breathes new life into our souls, that removes the dead stone heart and replaces it with a heart of flesh that can finally beat with life for the love of Christ. 
Now, before we get to the reaction of the crowd, Jesus is not finished with his compassion. Because then it says in verse 15, he gave him to his mother. Jesus, this is the first of the raising of the dead. There's three times that Jesus restores someone to life. This young man, a little girl, and then his friend Lazarus. Lazarus, excuse me. In all three of those situations, he does it because of the needs of the loved ones. A widow, destitute, desperate parents, just mourning sisters. But you and I, what would we do? You just, so hope of Christ, 14 years ago, we got the little, the little infantile Bible study in the house, in the, in the house going on. And, and we're going to start worship for the first time in March in, in 2008. And so, uh, the Saturday, you know, we did a, did a big Easter egg hunt out at the middle school. And, and so that, that day, that's the Saturday before our first public worship service. And, and, and imagine, imagine a, a man is there with his family and, and it, in his zeal to get the hidden Easter egg, he trips and falls and dies. And I go and I say to him, young man, get up. And he gets up. And now he's alive. Do you think that's going to help our numbers for our first worship service? Man, you better believe it. Building a little floundering kind of ministry Wondering if God's in it. And then this. You know who's given the announcements Sunday morning? That guy. He's going to introduce himself every Sunday for the next 10 years. Hey, welcome to Hope of Christ. I'm John, the dude that was dead that Pastor Bailey raised. Yes, that's me. Yes, that's Pastor Bailey. Jesus is starting this floundering ministry with makeshift apostles, and he's just raised this man from the dead, it is time to go on circuit. And he gives him back to his mom. That's not why he raised him. He raised him because he loved his mother. Because that's what she needed. Jesus' heart is for the widow. His actions are for the widow. And so he gives what was rightly his. That kid is, that guy's dead. Whoever raises him to life gets to say, I own you now. I gave you that life. And instead of taking him, he gives him. He gives him to his mother. And now we see the, the response of the crowd, fear and worship and praise. First of all, they fear. And isn't that more than just a little appropriate? Isn't that the right response? I think, I feel like that's the right response every time someone encounters the power of God in Scripture. Peter, in his boat at the first miraculous catch, he falls on his knees. Go away, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Isaiah, caught up into the glory of heaven. Woe is me! I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. The disciples, when Jesus stops the storm, again, with just a word, we're told, first you're told they were afraid of the storm, and then he stills the storm, and then the fear word is an even bigger fear word. This is, And then they were afraid of Jesus. And they said, who is this? 
that even the wind and the waves obey his voice. Who is this? Psalm 130. I love this. If you, O Lord, should, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But, but, but with you there's forgiveness so that you might be feared. God gives life. That should scare us. Not like scare us like, like the dark scares us, but scare us into worshiping him. Who is this? This is someone worthy of our worship. They glorified God. And I know that maybe worship and praise go together, but they glorify God and then they praise Jesus with their mouth. A, a great prophet has arisen among, among us. True, but incomplete. A great prophet has risen among us. God has visited his people. Again, true, but did they really realize the full truth of that second statement? Why? Why the, a, 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 a prophet, a great prophet has visited us. This is where I remember I forgot to give you an announcement at the beginning of the service. New Life Community is not coming in today. So some of you might be like, dude, we are not going to do well here. We're doing great. We're doing great, okay? Everyone relax. Today, it's like watching baseball that goes into overtime, and you're, you're excited. You don't get angry and you throw up your hands and be like, is this going to end soon? No, you're excited. You're like, look at that, overtime. I get more for my money. So that's where we are. We're in overtime, more for your money. You're welcome. So back to why the great prophet. A great prophet has visited us. Why? Why? Because, so this is where you need to know, uh, you need to know something about history and ironically something about geography. So if you don't know much about history and you don't know much geography, then uh, I can't help you. But there's a great song about you. Uh, so history and geography. Nain is about two miles north of Another town. It's on, it's on the, the northern edge of a hill called, called the Hill of Mora. Uh, not Myra or Mara, just Mora. Uh, so on the southern edge of that hill is a town called Shunem. And about 800 years earlier, in the town of Shunem, a widow's son died and a prophet named Elisha, restored him to life and, in a very interesting kind of, well, that's kind of cool way, in Second Kings, especially in the Greek translation, the words used about what Elisha did after restoring the widow's son said, and he gave him to his mother. See, Elisha and even his predecessor, Elijah, they both had moments where they raised a widow's son, restored him back to life and back to his mother. In both cases, they prayed to God. So it's actually not true that they restored him. They prayed to God and God restored the young man's life. Here, again, Jesus speaks and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. A great prophet indeed, but not quite enough. God has visited his people. 
Does it matter? Why does it matter whether Jesus is a great prophet uh, or whether God has indeed visited them? Because, in fact, Jesus was a great prophet. He was the great prophet. In fact, he's the great prophet Moses told the people God would send one day. God said in, Moses told them in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. See, if Jesus isn't the Son of God and the Savior of sinners, if Jesus didn't himself die on a cross for our sins, if he wasn't raised to life himself, not just restored, but resurrected, raised to a new life, then then the help and hope that he offers the centurion and his servant, the widow and her son, they're all temporary. Because the servant will get sick again. The son's going to die again. But if Jesus isn't raised, then we're still lost. We're still dead in our sins. But Jesus is raised. His resurrection is in defeat of, of death, in defeat of sin. You and I have hope today because the word of Jesus, the Son of God, has power. Because the heart of Jesus, his compassion for you, has power. Because the resurrection of Jesus in defeat of death and sin has power. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus for defeating death and sin that we we can come to you weak and unstable how wonderful to see a picture of a man so trusting in you that he just knows that you have the power to heal to save but how great to then see one who has no hope but great need. And you have the power to heal and to save. Lord Jesus, thank you. We praise you and we worship you for the work you have done in your life and your death and your resurrection. We serve and praise a risen Savior. Help us to fear you rightly, to glorify your name, and to praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.